Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Trying not to fade away into a cloud of dust. It's episode 212 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. Big, big show this week for a lot of reasons. First of all, we have Tasia Tellis joining us this week, who is, of course, Echo on the 100. Going to learn about all things 100 related. Hey, I said we were going to be talking about the show more, right? This kind of kicks it up even more, doesn't it? So we're going to look forward to that. Of course, my spoiler-filled review of Avengers Infinity War is going to be coming up a little bit later on. Consider this your warning that the review will be full of spoilers, and yes, I do have a lot to say. But first, of course, we have free comic book day this weekend. Hopefully, you've already gone out to your local shop if you're listening to this after Friday. Picked up your books that were there for free and some others as well in supporting your local comic book shop. So, in that respect... It's time to talk about comics. What we're reading, a special extra size edition next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Addy Shankar, and I'm on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab your laptop, your tablet, or your long box, whatever you're reading on. It's time for what we're reading. Going to do three books this week, and I'm going to try not to dance around. You know, I don't like spoiling books, so I'm going to try not to dance around it too much and just give you my overall impressions of the book itself. I'm going to start things off with something that was announced at Image Expo that I was really excited about. Death or Glory number one from Image Comics and the great Rick Remender. Bengal, of course, on the art, Russ Wooten on the letters. An amazing cover by Bengal as well. So we kind of meet Glory. She's been kind of raised off the grid. You know, there's truckers, bikers, stuff like that. And when I say off the grid, I mean off the grid, like no social security number ever, all of this other stuff. I mean, truly off the grid. Now, basically a bunch of people fighting for freedom, really. The the description of the book says, fighting for true freedom on the American open road. Now, problem with Glory is, is that her father is ailing and they, of course, don't have the money to take care of his medical medical expenses. And no, no social security card means what? know a lot of things like healthcare coverage and stuff like that. So she's decided to do something. And again, not going to spoil this. She's decided to start off on a little bit of a spree, almost like a Robin Hood esque type spree, right? But to try and gain the money that she needs to pay for her father's surgery. Now her family of, of fellow off the gridders have tried to help as much as they can, but really hasn't been able to. And basically she's finding anybody that's crooked and trying to take from them in a matter of speaking. And I got to tell you, this might be, no pun intended here, one of the fastest 40-page reads I've ever had. This is an extra oversized first issue. I honestly didn't know it was 40 pages before I started reading it. I don't like knowing that kind of stuff before I go into it because I feel like I'm going to judge it preconceived notion just by that. I was done really, really quickly. It was just so high octane. There was so much action and intrigue because this book's a lot deeper than you think it is. It's not just all about car chases and, and you know, there's there's uh, liquid nitrogen at one point and, and there's some crazy stuff, but there's it goes a lot deeper 
then you might think you really start to wonder, you know, what it would be like or what it would take to live completely off the grid. And then there's the there's the consequences of doing that, but there's also the benefits to doing that as well. It really creates a conversation. And when the chips are down and something happens and you kind of need to be at least a little bit on the grid, is that to your detriment? And so it really made me think when I was reading this book, and I love that when I read new books, is, is this going to make me think and not just have me drone along for 20 plus pages. And this book definitely did make me take a step back. Now, great, granted, the action was really, really great. No matter of fact, the art in this book, it was very, I want to say vintage style. I don't know how else really to describe it. It was so vivid. I loved every second of it. It almost felt like I was watching a really good 80s action show or action movie and I absolutely mean no disrespect to that whatsoever it just felt like it was it was so compelling in its look and its delivery I just so much loved this book this is a pull for me death or glory number one by image comics this is one of those stories that I'm going to read first when I have it at the top of the pile on my pull box this is one of the ones I'm going to grab and read first that's how much I was really into this book Couldn't wait to see what Benjamin Percy was going to be doing with Nightwing. So let's start here with Nightwing number 44 and the great Benjamin Percy taking over. Chris Mooneyham does the art. Nick Filardi on the colors and Carlos M. Managual on the letters. Declan Shelby and Jordi Belair do an amazing cover. Now, one of the things that I thought was funny right off the bat was the page with the 16 panel grid on it. Made me laugh. It was like, in your face, Tom King. You're not the only one that can do this stuff. I'm sure that was kind of done on purpose, and and I loved it. And that had nothing to do with anything other than it made me laugh. I thought I would just point that out there. Now, speaking about being off the grid, it's kind of funny. This is almost the exact opposite in that Nightwing's kind of caught up on how much technology is changing things, especially in the world of you know fighting crime and crime itself, and a tech case just sort of falls right into his lap. I'm not going to go into the details of what actually happens and what the villain themselves is doing. I don't really get to know who the villain is. That's part of the mystery of this book. But we get a bit more serious of a tone on Nightwing than we have in previous books recently, especially for Rebirth. I mean, there was still, you know, kind of wisecracking Nightwing, and he still had his lighthearted moments. But there was definitely a different tone to this one for some reason. And maybe maybe that's because of Benjamin Percy, who brought that very much to the Green Arrow series. And, you know, you still had moments where it was fun with Ollie, but there was a lot of serious moments as well. So it still feel like, feels like Nightwing, maybe with a little bit more of an edge. Now, it makes for some, some good points, actually, about technology. And it shows just how easy people are to just kind of accept it without even thinking about it. You know like how when you the terms of service things pops up, right? You say, and it says, have you read it? And nine times out of ten, I know you don't read it. I usually don't either. You just click OK thinking, what's the worst that could happen? And then all of a sudden you have to give them a kidney or something. It just, just goes to show how much we'll just kind of accept things, especially flaws in technology too, where it just goes, eh, it must just be a bug. I'll just restart my phone or something like that. So it really goes into that, and and there's kind of a funny moment between uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon where they're going back and forth. Of course, you know, Barbara up on all the technology, and Dick not so much. So there's a really nice back and forth there, and both, again, bring up pretty good points. Again, we don't really get to see who the big bad is, but we do get kind of a tease 
at what's going on. It's definitely some scary stuff, and it definitely makes you want to think about how much technology you're actually using. The art in this book actually reminded me a lot of the Nightwing The New Order series, where it was also a very throwback look. You saw maybe the hair was a little bit longer on Nightwing in this one, too. The age is about the same as it was in the Nightwing run that had just been going on. So we're not talking about a shift in age here. But what we are talking about is just a little bit of a different look. But I kind of like this new edgy Nightwing book. And I like the story that's been brought forward. Looks like we're going to get something new and a new villain to go along here. So I'm all in on this. I've been reading Nightwing from the beginning of Rebirth. Can't wait to continue doing that. This one is a pull for me as well. Nightwing number 44 from DC Comics. One more, we're going to jump into the world of tanks. Citadel number one from Dark Horse Comics. Garth Ennis doing the writing, PJ Holden on the art, Michael Atia on the colors, and Rob Steen on the letters. Actually, really good cover as well by Isaac Hannaford. Now, this is dealing with a battle between the Germans and the Russians in 1943 over control of the Eastern Front in Kursk. Now, we see teams, various teams, getting ready for the battle, and there's a lot of tank talk. And not necessarily shop talk per se. It's not like going into like a NASCAR garage and you know the start you start talking about yawn, nobody knows what you're talking about, sort of thing. So now there is a little bit of unexpected action, but you know, not a whole lot of action in this first issue because there's this first this first issue is really kind of all about anticipation and the build for the battle that's to come. Here's the problem though, we don't really get much on the battle itself. I mean, you kind of know what's going on. They, you got to kind of get it laid out for you in the beginning, but you really just, the emphasis just seems to be on the overwhelming odds of the battle for one side against the other. And then there's, there's some action, but the humor in this book definitely felt forced at times. It's like it was thrown in there just to kind of try to be in there. There was really a lot of lack of character background, I think, which made it really difficult to get invested in finding out, you know, Hey, these people are going into battle, they're against the odds. That's not really enough for me. I have to have some sort of an investment in these characters in order to care about them going into battle because, you know, it's not like it's somebody I know personally and it's not a character that, you know, you're really attached to over time like a, like a Batman or a Superman or a Captain America or something like that. These are characters you grew up with. I didn't grow up with the characters in World of Tanks. And even if you're playing the game, how invested are you in these characters anyway, and maybe in playing the game you should know more about the characters. So maybe that's on me a little bit, but I just didn't feel like there was a whole lot to go on there that made me care about what happened to them in later on in the book. The art in this book is the best part. It is extremely good, greatly detailed. I mean, there's definitely no complaints as far as the art is concerned, but I mean, I don't know, just... It didn't feel like this was a book that was really going to grab me. And for me personally, I think that this is a drop. I'm not sure that this is a book I'm going to continue reading because it didn't really grab me enough. There, It didn't really need to have as much action as long as you gave me a good story. And, I, and I'm, kind of, I'm kind of burnt on World War II stories anyway, so I was kind of seeing if this one would jump out. And it really kind of didn't, unfortunately. So World of Tanks Citadel number one from Dark Horse is going to be a drop for me. That's going to do it for what we're reading. Don't forget to support your local comic book shops on Free Comic Book Day this Saturday. That is, if you're listening before Saturday anyway, and not afterwards. Otherwise, hopefully you already supported your local shops. We are going to be giving our spoiler-filled review of Avengers Infinity War. Consider that your warning. It's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
This is Benjamin Percy, and you're listening to the Down and Dirty Podcast. So, who wants to get into stone collecting? That's right, we're going to be talking about Avengers Infinity War, my spoiler-filled, I cannot say that enough times, spoiler-filled review of Avengers Infinity War is happening right now. So, have if you haven't seen it, I can't imagine... That you haven't, unless you've been like glory and death or glory, like I was just talking about being off the grid, then you've probably seen Avengers Infinity War. So uh, here's here's the deal. Not going to get into the whole plot. Not going to get into every character, every scene. You've seen the movie. You know who's in it. You know what was going on. So I'm just going to go ahead and give you my thoughts on the movie as a whole. And I'm going to start with Thanos. Because I thought that Josh Brolin did a fantastic job giving us a full-range Thanos. And that is something that has been lacking, except for maybe recently in Marvels, that you see Thanos is the mad titan, right? You know, he's just at times a little bit crazy, and he wants to destroy the world. Well, he kind of only wants to destroy half the world's population. Still enough... But they gave him meaning. They gave him purpose. Even if it was insane, they gave him purpose and they and he stuck to it. And he was genuine about it. He wasn't mad. He wasn't crazy. He was just, he truly believed that this was actually the right thing to do. And that is the scariest villain of all, isn't it? The ones that think that this crazy genocide is the right thing to do. And that humanity will thank him for it. And the world and, you know, any species of any kind on any planet will actually thank him for this. There's actually the scene where he talks about destroying half the population of a planet. And then they were thriving after that and they should have thanked him for it. And it was just so, it's it's unbelievable because you're like, this guy really believes the Kool-Aid that he's handing out. It's, it's unbelievable. And the way that the Black Order just sort of follows him and wants to see this happen as well. It it just makes it that much more insane for the lack of a better term, but it's really not because he doesn't feel like he's insane. And then to find out, and I'm going to be a little all over the place here because I'm going to, I really want to talk about Thanos is that when Gamora dies and he kills her to get the soul stone and you find out that yes, he truly actually did care for Gamora. That, to me, was one of the the most powerful scenes in the entire movie because that speech that Gamora gives about how you don't love anything and this is the universe teaching you a lesson and then the moment that she realizes that that's not the case and he actually does care about her, in that moment, what is that like? You know, I can't possibly put myself in that situation. Hopefully you've never had anything terrible in your life enough that you could put yourself in that situation either. And then moments before she dies, that's what we get. And then you actually get, remember when Mantis jumps on top of Thanos' shoulders and, and tries to kind of knock him out while they try to pull the Infinity Gauntlet off. And she's like, he's grieving. And there's almost like a, a sudden shock where everybody's almost frozen, wondering, well, how is that even possible? Because all you see from Thanos in the beginning is death, 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 destruction, 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 when he kills half the Asgardians on Thor's ship, right? And even after he kills Loki. Then you start to slowly peel the onion of Thanos and realize that he's a much more deep and complex villain than you could really think. So this is one of the instances where finally it looks like Marvel 
has learned their lesson and gotten the villain 100% right because it would have been easy to just portray Thanos as this murderous, crazy person who wants to rule the world. No, it's not even about that. He thinks he can fix the world. He actually wants to fix it. He has a hero's mindset, but from an insane perspective. And that made Thanos, to me, such an amazing and interesting villain. One of the other things I really loved about this movie, and anytime you have a giant ensemble cast like this, you wonder how in the world that everybody's going to get their time. And you see all the characters and all the heroes. It didn't feel forced. It didn't feel crammed in. And we got pairings that I don't think we really expected to get. And it was kind of refreshing, like when Thor went with Rocket and Groot to try and forge his axe to kill Thanos. First of all, every time, every single time, Thor called Rocket Raccoon a rabbit. I lost it every time. Thought it was hilarious every time. Maybe it wasn't for you. It was for me. For some reason, I just found that funny every time. But then they kind of also found a common ground in loss of family, too. So you're like, hey, who would have thought that Thor and Rocket would actually find a common ground together and actually end up sort of becoming friends as their al- as their forced allies I thought that that was really, really cool. I thought that was a nice moment. We also got to see an amazing interaction between Doctor Strange and Iron Man, Tony Stark. Also, one of my favorite parts of the entire movie were were those two kind of going at each other. A couple of the really big egos that you don't necessarily consider big egos. You get to see them kind of go at each other a little bit. And then that decision, decision that gets made by Doctor Strange, and yes, he does, end up saving Tony in the end. After all, I will get to the deaths here in just a second. We're going to spotlight that here in a second. But just the way that they went back and forth with each other, and then you bring Peter Parker as Spider-Man into that, it was just a very fun dynamic to me. And, you know, once you see Quill and Tony Stark, Peter Quill, Tony Stark interact together too, that was kind of funny and interesting. Ah, but Peter Quill. Oh, Peter, what did you do, man? What on earth did you do? Because if you're looking to point the finger at somebody and find out where it all went wrong, isn't it Peter Quill? Who I love, Chris Pratt. I love what he's done with Peter Quill. But then you kind of see the inexperience, the immaturity, the emotion get the best of him when he finds out what happens to Gamora And he sort of loses it. And that was kind of always Drax's MO, right? Drax almost blows it earlier on in the movie when you see him try to go after Thanos when they're in there with the Collector. And ultimately, that doesn't end up happening. And that was for the best. And then Peter Quill turns around later on in the movie, who's the one who stopped Drax in the first place, turns around later on in the movie and ends up being the one that blows it for everybody because he blows his top and starts beating on Thanos a little bit and then that knocks Mantis off which look takes off the mind control and then Thanos takes everybody out slips the infinity gauntlet back on sort of thing now if if Tony and 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 Iron Man and excuse me Spider-Man can get that off that sort of you know solves a lot of problems there you might not defeat Thanos entirely because of that but you're sure going to slow him down a heck of a lot so i just thought that that was really really just oh it was so frustrating at the same time, but you kind of get it, don't you? Because that's who Peter Quill is at his core. He's emotional and he feeds off of that. He already felt like he was kind of one up by Thor earlier and he has an ego too. And that's his dad's name. I mean, I can, you not have a little bit of an ego. 
So Peter Quill kind of being almost the reason, not the sole reason, certainly, but certainly a huge reason for the way things went the way they were was kind of frustrating. But also you're like, yeah, that's about right. I could see him being the one that sort of screws things up. And you knew somebody was going to screw this up, right? I mean, even the couple of times where you thought Thanos might have been taken out and he wasn't. You know, it's it's just one of those things where you knew that there was going to be a monkey wrench that was going to make things harder for the heroes. And that's exactly what happened. And I do want to skip ahead to the deaths now because this was one problem I actually had with this movie. I wasn't shocked by any of the deaths at all. I'm not saying I wasn't moved by some of them, but I wasn't shocked by them. I kind of thought that Gamora would go down. You kind of thought that it was time for Loki to finally die. And that, and that happens really early on. I mean, it still kind of sucked because I always loved Tom Hiddleston. I love Loki, but I will admit there was some Loki fatigue that was starting to set in. And I thought that Ragnarok was a good way to say goodbye to that character. So I could see that happening. The one moment where I actually thought it might be different is, is that battle on Titan and you see Thanos get the best of Iron Man and Tony Stark and, and he gets stabbed. And, you, and I for a split second, I thought to myself, wow, are they really going to kill off Iron Man? The one, the one character I actually figured that was safe in this whole thing. And they're going to kill him off. And then, of course, Stephen Strange makes the decision to give it the time stone, thus sparing Tony's life. And you're like, well, yeah, exactly what I expected. And I'll admit that was kind of a letdown in that I really thought that Tony's death would have had a huge impact on future movies. And and I think that, you know, skipping ahead to what happens at the end. Yeah. I mean, was it shocking that Black Panther went away? Sure. Was it shocking to see Spider-Man go away? Sure. And that was one of the most emotional deaths I thought of the entire movie because the way they played that out and the way that Tom Holland played that I thought was Absolutely incredible. So hats off to him for that. But when you see character after character after character sort of fade away into the dust, it just didn't seem like it was a permanent type of situation. You know what I mean? It didn't seem maybe it's the comic book fan in me. Maybe it's because I, you know, I kind of have a crystal ball for I know where this is going to go eventually, I, I guess, sort of thing. It didn't really have as much of an impact as you would have thought. And, and maybe because it was a result of what happened with the with the Infinity Gauntlet, and you know that it can really kind of be undone just as easily as it was done. So there really was no huge impact on seeing T'Challa go away or seeing Peter Quill go away or Drax or any of these other characters. It just didn't feel like this big climactic bummer of a moment, other than feeding off the emotions of the characters that we love, like when Cap finally sits down, especially after Bucky goes away, Cap sits down and just says, oh God, and the the reality of the fact that they lost, that Thanos won and they lost really sets in. And that was one of the best things that this movie did. Even though the deaths did not have as much of an impact for me, the best thing that this movie did was to show that the heroes can lose because we never bought it from a Marvel villain, did we? Not really anyway. There were certainly times in past Marvel movies where it felt like our heroes were in peril for lack of a better way of putting it, but it never really felt like at the end the hero was going to get the up the, the villain was going to get the upper hand. This time 
the villain does. So it's a reminder that nothing can be taken for granted from now on in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? That the villain can come out on top sometimes. And who better to do that than Thanos himself, right? Is to be the one that finally wins. And then you get to see his right off in the sunset moment as well. So I thought that that was a nice way to kind of round things out. And that's one thing that this movie did really well was callbacks. We had callbacks with Vision and Cap where Cap says, you know, we don't, we don't, you know, you know, we don't sacrifice anybody basically. And then you had the callback between Vision and Scarlet Witch. And I love their dynamic and their relationship in this movie. You had the callback with Thanos saying he could finally retire and he could just watch the sunset over the, over the universe. And again, he does that. So a lot of great callbacks in this movie. And I'm, I'm not saying that it was perfect. It really, it really wasn't. It definitely had its flaws. I do think it was a little bit too long. I understand you had to juggle a lot of things. So I, I get why it had to be two hours and 40 minutes long. But at the same time, you, you could have shored up a little bit of it, I think. So, I mean, the, I thought a lot of the scenes with Thor mattered. I'm surprised that, that Black Panther really wasn't given a whole lot. In this movie, I liked the I liked the huge battle on Wakanda. Loved that. Loved that they got Mbaku back in there, and, and you know all of the of the King's Guard was all all in there as well. So it's almost it was almost like a back to Black Panther sort of thing in that setting. I loved that. But at the same time, you propped him up in that movie, right? I mean, you made him vulnerable too, but you propped him up as a serious character going forward. And you don't really get to see a whole lot of moments from him. I realize, you know, you bring Steve Rogers back. You got to give him his due. Thor comes in and kind of saves the day. And that's a cool moment with Rocket and Groot. I actually love the part where Groot becomes the handle for the axe, you know, cuts his arm off. I thought that was pretty cool, especially for a teenage Groot that seemed uninterested in the entire movie. So I understand that. But at the same time, wouldn't this have been a nice golden opportunity to shine a little bit of a spotlight um, Black Panther. I think it's Shuri having a spotlight in the end, trying to free Vision of his stone. I thought that was cool, and maybe we'll see more of her in that role in the next couple of next couple of movies going forward at some point, or maybe even in some teases. Just I think he capitalized on the Black Panther movie, and I, I'm kind of sad that they didn't do that. And I'm kind of sad that you know certain characters went away and certain ones didn't because I think. They could have easily changed the dynamic a little bit, focused on some of the heroes that have worked more in the short term for Marvel than in the past. But then you kind of go back to the original Avengers, right? And that's kind of what we're left with. And they're going to pick up the pieces. And then, of course, the post credit scene where we get the tease for Captain Marvel and how maybe she's going to be the savior going forward and the one that can help undo all of this. And it seems like maybe... Captain Marvel is that character that once Steve Rogers goes away and you kind of figure he's going to go away, especially with it. Chris Evans has once again been talking lately. Once he goes away, maybe they, maybe Marvel really will look at Captain Marvel as the leader going forward. And Carol Danvers will be that top character at the top of the heap of the Avengers and sort of running things. I think that that would be a cool way to go about it. So a lot of good things that I loved about this movie but again, there were a couple things that sort of bugged me. The, the Peter Quill thing's going to bother me for a while. I know that that's probably stupid, but that one's going to bother me for a while. And I, I and maybe that would have been too easy of an out for the movie or wouldn't have made things interesting enough 
if they get the Infinity Gauntlet off. But then we would have had the whole, how is Thanos going to get it back sort of thing. And I, I, I really would have liked to see I like I do think that we got some good battles from the Black Order at the end, Proxima Midnight and company. Maybe could have seen a little... I would have liked to see more of them trying to get the stones and Thanos doing his thing. I would like to see a little bit more of that. I know we got some of that, but it didn't seem like a ton. And I do think that the way that... You know, maybe the Avengers do dispatch of them sort of one by one or one or two at a time and then one at a time sort of thing. And then Thanos is left on his own with that army, right? Maybe that's the way I'd like to see it go down. But I thought there was good action with Thanos who was fighting off a lot of the other heroes and Avengers. I did like that. So I think as far as huge ensemble cast movie goes and as far as something that was on such a scale and had such expectations behind it that Avengers Infinity War really does meet a lot of those expectations. And it'll be interesting to see in future movies how many of these deaths are actually going to stick. I do not think that this was the best Marvel movie of all time. That is a mark I will still give to Winter Soldier. I'll also give the edge to Black Panther over Avengers Infinity War. But I do think that this is somewhere in the top five conversation of Marvel movies for sure. But for that reason, I simply just cannot give this a 10 out of 10. I just cannot. So I'm going to go ahead and give this a nine space beacons of hope out of 10. And that is a nod to the post credit scene. That's going to do it for my spoiler filled review of Avengers infinity war. Yeah, I didn't talk about everything, but you saw the movie. If you've got your opinions or something you'd like for me to expound more on possibly on Twitter or something, tweet the show at down and nerdy seven, five, seven, be happy to go into any more with you up next. Plenty of nerd news to get to. Let's do it next on the down and nerdy podcast. Yeah, brother. This is Josh Segura, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Might be time to up your broadband connection because it's time for nerd news. And I say that because we now know a little bit more information anyway about the DC streaming service that's going to be coming soon. It's going to be called DC Universe, unveiling a whole bunch of logos for shows like Titans and Young Justice Outsiders and the Harley Quinn animated series. And not a whole lot of details as far as pricing, when it's going to be released. It's very much just a tease at this point. I know there's been some question on whether or not it's going to be available outside of the U.S. I don't have any information on that right now. If I were to guess, if I was a betting man, I would say that it'll probably launch in the United States first and then launch outside of the U.S. after that. We might see some bleed over into the U.K. and Canada. That might actually happen a little bit beforehand. But I, I do think that this will launch in the U.S. first and then continue outside of the U.S. after that. I don't want to bury the lead here, though, because it seems like the biggest story to come out of this, and it was kind of a shock to all of us, was that we're going to get a Swamp Thing live-action series and James Wan's Atomic Monster is going to be bringing it to the forefront along with Warner Brothers Television. This according to Deadline, another story that we're going to talk about from Deadline here in just a second, too. It's going to be targeting a 2019 premiere date, which is contingent on the script. The script is going to be written by a pretty familiar name. It's Mark Verheiden, who does Ash vs. the Evil Dead. But if you're a DC fan, you know he worked on Constantine and on Smallville as well. And then you bring in Gary Dauberman, who was the co-writer of It!, so, I mean, definitely you're looking at, you know, writers that know how to handle the supernatural, maybe even a horror aspect, 
bringing into this as well. I'm just shocked that we're getting this. I know that DC has always wanted to do something with Swamp Thing. And, you know, we've got a comic series that's going to be coming not too long from now, if I'm not mistaken. If I remember correctly, we've got a Swamp Thing limited series that's going to be coming. And they've worked Swamp Thing into animated movies and things like that before. And maybe you wondered if we could see him pop up on, you know, possibly the Arrowverse in some respect. Well, now we know we are going to be getting a live-action Swamp Thing. And until we kind of get details of where this is going to go, again, I don't want to speculate on casting, on who could play Swamp Thing at this point, because until you know the tone of the show and what the story is is going to be about and what timeline we're set in here, there's really no need to speculate on casting at this point, at least not from my perspective anyway. Here's something that's kind of interesting, though. When the logos were released, everyone was saying, hey, what happened to Metropolis? You know, that Lois Lane-led Superman prequel series that we were supposed to get? Lex Luthor was going to be involved. Well, now Deadline says that that is going to be heading for redevelopment. What that means, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that it is going to be delayed. We will not see it in 2019. I don't think that that's that big of a deal. I actually think that Krypton might have a lot to do with this. I know the two aren't directly related. But you've already got one Superman prequel series that seems to be doing really, really well. And, you know, there's time travel elements there and you're introducing so many characters into Krypton. I'm not saying you can't different universes, all that stuff. I get it. I'm not saying you can't do both at the same time. But why have two Superman prequel series running at the same time? Let Krypton get going a little bit. Let it get some legs under it and maybe take it in a certain direction to where once the focus is elsewhere on Krypton, then you can say, okay, now we can launch Metropolis in this Lois Lane-led series and see where we can go with this. Because, I mean, and I know the argument's going to be, well, now you're going to be keeping a strong female character off TV in Lois Lane. I get that. But if you haven't watched Krypton, there's a lot of strong women characters on Krypton. So I think the ladies are being represented pretty well on DC TV right now, especially in the Superman universe. So I don't think that that there's a lack of strong female characters in any DC TV shows. I know that there isn't necessarily a female-led series, unless you want to consider DC's Legends of Tomorrow and Sarah Lance. I think she's the captain. I think that's female-led, even though it's an ensemble cast, right? So I just think that if you're not sure and you're not positive that this is going to work, long-term, why rush it? Go back to the drawing board, see what you can come up with. Maybe it's a little, something a little bit different. Maybe it's not. it has almost nothing to do with Superman or Lex Luthor at all. Maybe you're just following an early Lois Lane. What would be the problem with that? I have no issue with that at all. I actually think that that could be really interesting from a reporting and a crime reporting aspect. So that's a show you could absolutely do and do on the cheap, for a streaming service. Now, we have no idea how much this is going to cost. I'm guessing $9.99, maybe $10.99 a month. If you're looking at a target price based on just what everything else is priced at, I think that that's probably a good bet. And I think that, you know, fans will pay that. I would certainly pay that. I have no problem with it. So finding out more details as we go on DC Universe, I think is going to be crucial to the success of the service, especially in the early going, because, I mean, from all that we've seen from these from Titans so far, the stuff that's been leaked, yeah, there's going to be some expensive stuff that's going on in these shows. So you better make sure you have the money to back that up. Do a little bit of trailer talk now, because the trailer for the Robin Hood reboot, called the teaser trailer, it was two minutes long, it's a trailer, okay? So the Robin Hood reboot, reboot trailer has come out, and 
it seems like the, 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 the trend on Twitter was, what is everybody wearing? Are those suit jackets? What's going on here? And my response to that is, you can't get married to a timeline here. Because clearly this reboot wants to do things a little bit differently. So it's not like we're going to be going back to the time of Robert of Loxley. It just feels different. It feels Knight's Tale different to me. You know how Knight's Tale was based in ye olden times, right? But there was still kind of a modern feel to it. You know, it seemed like it had a little bit of an edge. I think that they're trying to capture that a little bit here in the Robin Hood reboot. And the other, the interesting, most interesting thing to me was that Robin Hood's face was covered. It looked like Robin Hood Ninja at times, right? With all the flipping and arrows and stuff like that and stuff exploding everywhere. So that to me is the most interesting thing because, you know, in almost any iteration, sure, Robin has the hood, right? But there's no covering of the face or anything like that. You know, Robin didn't do a whole lot to hide his identity. So now there's a mysterious, it almost harkens you back to season one of Arrow, right? Like, who's the hood sort of thing. Except, you know, Oliver never covered his face. So that you're adding a mystery element here, at least in the beginning. So it's not widely known that this is Robert of Loxley, Robin of Loxley that is doing this, right? It's, it's, a, it's a mystery. And even to, uh, even to Maid Marian at this point, right? It's a mystery to her as well. And now we're also seeing Little John as kind of like the mentor and trainer for, you know, Robin becoming the hero that he needs to be sort of thing and, and certain aspects of being ready to take on, you know, he's, I think there was a line, I'm paraphrasing the trailer where, where Jamie Foxx says, you know, you wanted to steal. Now you take it to the next level sort of thing. So it's, it becomes, you know, first you're robbing the rich to give to the poor. And now it's almost like taking down a regime, which is where eventually Robin Hood always goes. Right. So, and one thing I'm worried about with this movie is, first of all, it's action, action, action in the trailer. There's no question about that. I don't think that this is one of those movies that you're going to be able to get caught up too much in a story on. You know, if you're looking for for a classic, you know, in-depth storytelling, I'm not sure that this particular Robin Hood is going to be for you. If you want something that's going to be a fun action movie that, that could absolutely be a ni- really good popcorn flick or something, and something that you don't have to take too seriously, I think that's the approach you have to take based on this trailer alone from the Robin Hood movie because you've got, you know, olden Molotov cocktails flying around, right? And all these, all this different weaponry that doesn't seem like it necessarily belongs in quote unquote that era. So I think that this movie you can't take too seriously. And I, that's the approach I'm taking to it. I, I'm, I'm, I worry that we're going to go like the, the route of the mummy reboot movie where it's, it's just, what, while I did like a lot about the Mummy reboot movie, it, it's, as far as setting up a universe, it was a spectacular failure. And I know that that's what they want to try and do with these Robin Hood movies. So if, if, if I'm giving out advice to Lionsgate and the folks, don't focus in this movie. I'm sure it's too late by now. But hopefully there's no focus on let's build a universe around these characters. Hopefully the, the focus is going to be on this movie and that's it. And, you know, prop up characters that you'd like to see more of in their own movies... But focus on this movie, because if you don't get the first one right, there is no universe. So, so far it looks fun. I'm not jumping up and down about it. I'm a big Robin Hood fan, so I'm interested to see exactly what angle they take with this. And if they want to make it different, I'm fine with that. If you don't want to stick it in ye olden times, as I like to call it, you don't necessarily have to do that. I'm not married to a time period here. You just have to give me something fun and give me the true aspects of the character, right? Give me a true Robin Hood adaptation 
and give me a good relationship between he and little John, and, I, and I'm good at this point. Here's a big story that I did not really expect to see come out this week, and that is that Hasbro, according to a press release, has purchased the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers from Sabin Properties for $522 million. Now, this does include a few other brands. You know, I, lo- I looked at them, none of any huge significance, certainly not the level of the Power Rangers, right? And, you know, they already had the toy license, which they acquired in February of 2018. So while this shouldn't be a huge shocker, it is paradigm shifting because there are a lot of things to consider here. First of all, you have Hasbro that launched AllSpark Pictures not too long ago, right? You had a Power Rangers reboot, which I actually thought was pretty darn good, and I've never been a huge Power Rangers fan, but I liked the movie. I thought it was a good step in the right direction. And now you're going to turn that on its ear because this is much more than about, you know, series that are going to be coming out at this point, right? This is about the future of the cinematic Power Rangers at this point because now all the chatter, you know, fans' heads are exploding here because they're like, oh, well, now you can cross Power Rangers over with Transformers and Mask and Micronauts and all this stuff. And I'm like, hold on a second. Okay. Yeah, we could do that. Okay, they could absolutely do that. And and Transformers could certainly use a shot in the arm as far as movies are concerned. And it feels like we're getting ready for a soft reboot of that franchise anyway. So yeah, you could cross that over. This is not something you need to do right away. I think that this is flying cars in the future for Hasbro. I don't think they're thinking about crossover at all. I think what Hasbro's thinking here is we've acquired a property that is a known property that spans so many different age groups. I mean, every different Power Rangers TV series that comes out on Nickelodeon or whatever networks that they might come out on, every one is, 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 seems like it's a little bit less than the one that came before it, right? I mean, there, there are no masterpieces when it comes to the Power Rangers TV series anymore. They're made for kids and, and, and you know, preteens and stuff like that. And that's kind of where it ends. As an adult, you're not really supposed to be able to appreciate these. They're there because they print money in a certain respect, right? So that's why that's going on. But maybe Hasbro takes a different angle on that. Now, they're not even going to be launching any new Power Rangers stuff, it looks like, until 2019. So certainly taking their time in doing this, and I'm sure that we'll find out more information from Hasbro at San Diego Comic-Con this year. But what I want to see is don't just completely reboot the movie franchise if that's if if you're going to be making Power Rangers movies anytime soon. I think you just pick up where you left off with the cast that you had. I think that one thing that the Power Rangers movie got so right was the casting of the Rangers. It was a good chemistry. It was a good story in how they banded together and finally became a team at, at that point in the movie. I think that you kind of hold serve on that right. So the movie universe... I leave that alone. TV shows, I kind of leave that alone too. Maybe you want to make them a little bit more serious. Maybe you want to do something on more of a major network for our Power Rangers TV series and take a different angle on it. I'm not mad at that idea either if that's what you want to do, but here's where it gets interesting. Hasbro has a relationship with IDW. I think that that is no secret, and there has been a lot of great stuff. So here's the deal. Boom Studios has the comic book license for the Power Rangers. What happens to that? Because you know eventually something has to be done. I know that Hasbro probably wants to keep everything under the IDW umbrella. I'm not sure exactly when the contract ends for Boom Studios and Power Rangers. And I know the Chatter Grid's going on right now. And Boom's done a lot of great things with Power Rangers comics. Don't get me wrong. But at the same time... If you're Hasbro and now you've acquired Power Rangers, 
while you could work with Boom on this, I think you really want everything under the same umbrella. And to take that even further, if there's going to be a crossover between the Power Rangers and any of these other Hasbro properties, it's going to be in comics first. I think that that is absolutely 100% no secret. You Sure, you could, you could still do that now. I realize that. You know, Boom and IDW have worked well together in the past. So, I mean, sure, that's something you could absolutely do right now. But wouldn't it be a lot easier if it was all under the same umbrella? And you don't even need to change creative teams. I mean, you keep keep Kyle Higgins on from IDW. Right? I don't think IDW would have any problem with having Kyle Higgins remain on the Power Rangers comics. There's, You don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's just going to be a different sticker on the front of the book at this point, right? It's going to be a different brand. Instead of boom, it'll be IDW. So I'm just curious to see how long it is before that transition is made because that transition at this point has to be made, right? And and for, for a toy industry that has been in trouble for a while, I, I applaud Hasbro for trying to do some different things to keep their business going and keep that brand name of Hasbro recognizable even if toy sales are not what they used to be sort of thing. And I think Hasbro puts out some of the best toys in the business. So I'm not it's not a knock on their product, it's just a knock on the retail industry as a whole and this isn't, you know, Fox business or MSNBC business or anything like that. So I'm not going to get into the business aspect of things. So what I will say is this is that this is a good move for Hasbro and I'm very curious to see where they go with it. Speaking of the Hasbro universe, surprise surprise surprise, IDW brings in a very familiar name to be its editor-in-chief. Now, first I want to start off by saying Chris Ryall did a fantastic job as the front man for IDW. I don't think IDW would be where they are right now without him. But if I could have picked someone to succeed him and be the next person that pushes IDW even further up the ladder, it would be John Barber, who has done such a fantastic job writing these Hasbro books and all of these major arcs, or at least partially major arcs, that IDW has done with Hasbro, is the new editor-in-chief of IDW Publishing. And, I mean, this is a guy who just understands storytelling so well. He understands the brand of IDW, and especially what they're doing with one of their most, if not their most, important property that they have, and that is the Hasbro world. You need somebody like this involved. So Chris Ryall, Ted Adams did a very, very good job being at the front of IDW and getting IDW to this point. But now that you've reached this point, where do you go from here? And you've got a guy like John Barber with this in-depth experience of right now writing amazing comics. Not to say that Ted Adams didn't, because I actually think that he did have some good stuff that came out recently, as a matter of fact. But... John Barber is a proven commodity, right? And I know John Barber left IDW for a little bit, and now he's back, which I love. I just think that this is a guy that understands where this company can go and where this company will go under the right guidance, and now that right guidance is here, and he will protect, like a newborn baby, these Hasbro properties that have been one of the reasons that IDW's been getting so much press in the first place. So I think that this is a great move by IDW 
and I'm so glad that probably one of my favorite writers of the last couple of years now has this post because I think he's going to do an amazing job. That's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to be talking about the 100, maybe a little bit of Far Cry 5 as well, with Tasia Tellis plays Echo next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Summer Bischel from The Magicians, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. You know, I promised you we were going to be talking about the 100 a lot more on the Down and Nerdy podcast, so I thought we'd kick it up a notch this week with Echo herself. It's Tasia. Tell us, Tasia, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Now, speaking of great, how great was it when you kind of found out that Echo is going to be having a much bigger role in the fifth season? Oh, my God. I mean, I think I jumped up and ran around in my apartment for like a good 10 minutes before I could sit down and <laughs> take a deep breath. It was awesome. So now it was such an emotional roller coaster for Echo in the season four finale. I mean, she goes from nearly killing herself to later doing everything she can to kind of save one of the team. Now, we definitely saw a different side of her in the season five premiere. So what was it like showing that side of her? And do you think it's here to stay? It was difficult at first. I walked into the season, you know, with you only get a certain amount of information as each episode, the script comes to you. So other than that, aside from that, you're working on your own and trying to formulate with the information that you have like the best guess that you can cobble together. And and then you kind of cross-reference that with what the writers are telling you in the story. So going into season five, there was a lot of, oh, I was very curious, and it was tough because, uh, you know, who was this person after her foundation was, you know, taken from out beneath her, and, and she completely changed over the course of six years and, and in what ways did she stay the same so yeah it was a, a little scary at first but um it was cool to portray a different side of Echo you know someone that's not always angry someone that's not always fighting blindly for us to get at and finding kind of a truer version of her was really awesome actually <laughs> Speaking of interesting, it seems like the relationship between Echo and Bellamy is getting very, very much more interesting. And in the premiere, we kind of seem like they got very close, maybe even had a moment there. So she said it took, I think, three years to trust her. So how much will we learn about how their relationship has evolved as the season progresses? You'll learn quite a bit. I mean, when they get to Earth and and Octavia comes into the picture and some of the other cats, um, some of the other characters, you see see everything go into, you know, get, get put under pressure. So with that comes, like, Bellamy has his piece that he says about what's been going on, and Echo has her perspective, and Octavia has her perspective, and then there's Ice Nation, and there's all these other characters that haven't seen each other for a long time. So um, it definitely gets explored throughout the season and tested throughout the season, and... Um, yeah, the audience will get to know more about that for sure. Now, it looks like the battle for Eden in that last bit of green takes place more than just on the ground. So what can you tell us about the serpent and that army that we kind of see, that kind of seemed to be discovered in one of the trailers that was at the docking ship? They are pretty <laughs> brutal guys. I mean, it was it's a collection. It's a bunch of prisoners that are some of the worst that existed on Earth. And they got basically sent away from Earth because they were so aggressive or violent or just terrible, bad people. They got sent away to go work um, as miners on a project that um, was in in space. And so when they come back to Earth, 
they are really ready to take what's theirs. They feel really entitled to the space to eat in, and they put up a good fight. They present a lot of a lot of challenges for the people that are living there. It seems like in the first few episodes of the season this year, the spotlight's kind of shining on a particular group or a particular character early on. For example, the season five premiere was very focused on Clark. So we still have a we still got a bit of everything early on, though. But do you think do you like how the writers sort of kind of broke things down early? I think that's great. I mean, that's what makes the storyline so interesting is is it includes such, we have such a wide cast and a variety of characters and setting them all up and offering a lens or a perspective from from through their lens is really helpful in justifying every person's position. And that's what is needed to create that drama and create that conflict and the high stakes that we all love so much as the season progresses. So, yeah, I think the writers do a phenomenal job. We're talking to Tasha Tellis, who, of course, plays Echo on The 100, which you can watch every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock on The CW. Now, Tasha, we're going to switch gears a little bit because you also played Mary Mary, Mary Mae Fairgrave in Far Cry 5. So, <laughs> yeah. Much like a lot of your other I characters, she's, she's kind of dealt with a lot of tragedy, too, though. So how much did that backstory dictate kind of how you played that role? Well, it's interesting because when you find something within yourself that resonates that's effective that you can bring to characters, there are things that I found in myself that I brought to Echo and pieces of that that I can use for characters like Mary May. And she is just a brassy, tough chick, and everything's on the line. She has nothing really to lose at this point except for her home, but she's lost her family, and she is out for some vengeance. And it was it was really great to play her and just, you know, walk as her. She's from Montana, and she's just, she runs her own bar, and she's just a really strong, cool chick. So... She was a lot of fun to play. It's funny that you mentioned you found some things in Echo to bring to that role because I was kind of wondering if your two characters were kind of the switch settings. If you put Echo in Far Cry 5 and you put Mary May in The 100, how do you think they would deal with what each other's going through? Oh, my God. That is hilarious. And now that you put it that way, there actually are a lot of parallels between the two of them. But I would say that Echo, as her as data self, she was more someone that would, I mean, she fights for a belief in a cause. And so she had this kind of ice nation religion. She was against technology. She believed in the commanders. And so I don't know how she would take some, like, the, the storyline of the church in, in um, Far Cry. I think that she would definitely be able to fight off a bunch of people <laughs> pretty easily. And same with Mary May. I mean, she would join allies, I'm sure, with the Sky Crew and just kick some ass. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Now, you talked about how Mary runs a Spread Eagle bar, so I can't help but wonder, Tasia, if you had your own bar or club, what would you name it, and what kind of music would you play? Well, as a matter of fact, I do have my own bar or club. Oh, look at that! Shameless plug, here we go. (laughs) It's called The Parlor, and it's in Vancouver, and we're opening a second one in Toronto right now, actually. Nice! Yeah, and we play all sorts of stuff, but we primarily play uh, hip-hop, like old-school hip-hop and whatnot. That's pretty sweet. So in case you didn't know, there's where you can have your nighttime nighttime entertainment up north. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
Now let's go back to the 100 for a second. Is there anyone on the show that you haven't had many scenes with in the past seasons that you'd really like to see Echo interact with more or that will interact with more this season? Well, I would have loved um, if she interacted with Luna when Luna was still alive. I also think her and Indra have an interesting dynamic because the because Tree Crew and Ice Nation were very much enemies, and Indra and Echo are both such fierce, strong warriors. Like I would love to see a face-off between the two of those guys. But I've worked with everybody at least a little bit. Yeah, without giving too much away, I've worked with everybody at least a little bit, but I would love to work actually with Jackson. I would love to work with Sachin just because it would be such a fun time. He's really hilarious but on set. So those two characters haven't had much of a It's funny that you bring up the set itself because the show deals with so much heavy subject matter and everything's so deep a lot of the times. There's some brevity on the show too, but there's some serious stuff going on. So what do you all kind of do to keep things light on set when you're not shooting? Oh my God. I mean, when we're shooting, it's just such craziness. (laughs) And also we'll be like standing in the middle of the forest and it'll be raining and it's like snowing and then it's hailing and then it's like a bear (laughs) wanders like you know, the shot, and we're all like, what is going on? You're there for, you know, 13 hours or more. And so things can get pretty crazy, and it's just, I don't know, like, what happens. But we all start just, like, goofing, and maybe it's, like, the how cold it is outside. We just turn into a bunch of clowns between takes, and we just make jokes and try to keep things light and fun to get through the days, yeah. Nice. And I know that you have fun interacting with the fans as well. You've been able to do that a lot recently, meeting fans around the world. So before I let you go, what have the fans told you that they are most excited to see in this upcoming season? Honestly, the feedback that I've gotten so far is everybody wants to know who Echo is after six years in space and how much has she changed and, you know, just who has she become. And so... Um, that's really cool, and I really hope they like what they see as the season progresses. Well, you'll get to find out a lot every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock Eastern when you watch the 100 on the CW. If you want more of Tasia Tellis, you can also get Far Cry 5 and Watch Dogs 2, by the way, which she does one of the voices yeah. on as well, available at your favorite video game retailer. It's Tasia Tellis. Thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you so much. So great to talk to Tasia. Tell us about the 100, which I will say I was late to the party, late to the party, no more loving what they're doing with season five so far, so far and how the onion is being peeled on this. What feels like going is going to be an epic season of the show. And in season five, to be able to say that. That's absolutely amazing. A show that just keeps getting better and better is the 100, which you can watch every Tuesday night at 9 o'clock on The CW. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to Tasi Tellis for joining me this week. If you want to find out more about this week's show or, of course, any past shows that you might want to listen to in interviews, go to downandnerdypodcast.com. They're all up there. You can also follow the show on social media at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and on Instagram and facebook.com slash downandnerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.